I mean, if it was easy, everyone would do it. In the back of your mind, you know there's going to be those moments. What happens is your experience. When you come out the other side, you bank that little bit of experience and then that's your reference for the next one. So whether it's a big storm or equipment failure, you know, there's some pretty big showstoppers out there that there are no other fixes. You lose your rig over the side, it's game over. You lose your ability to make fresh water, it's game over. You can't eat or drink. You use your ability to generate power, again, it's game over. You can't run any of your communication or navigation system. You blow your sails up, you've got no means of propulsion um, to get you anywhere. So there's some key areas and you become this a jack of all trades but master of none and you try and get good at everything so that you can do your best and you can have input from the outside world to help you manage that but ultimately if it goes wrong it it potentially can go really wrong and I think in the back of your mind knowing that your life is in your hands or if you're in a team each other's lives rely on each other it makes a bond that's very strong. Hi, this is Joshua Spodek, and this is Leadership in the Environment. You're not the only one who cares about your impact enough to act. You're part of a global community undeterred by people saying, if others don't change first, then what I do doesn't matter, and other excuses. We've read the science. We can do this. This show is about personal responsibility, acting, and improving your life by your values. As guest after guest says, the challenge was hard, but thank you for getting me to do it. I wish I'd done it earlier. Listen on for leaders to inspire you, hear their struggles, and then act. Go to joshuaspodick.com slash podcast to commit to a public, personal challenge of your own. You're not alone, and you don't have to wait for others. Those who know that I'm flying might also know that I'm learning to sail to explore off North America. Most people, when they think about not flying, focus on what they miss. Well, they focus on the part that they miss that they like. They don't seem to have trouble ignoring the pollution that flying causes, but that's a separate thing. Sailing and other things that I've replaced flying with have given me far more than I could have predicted at a fraction of what I used to spend on flying. Among the many benefits of sailing is the sailing community. Today's guest, Dee Kafari, is off the charts. For many years a school teacher, she started sailing to reach world-class athlete levels. The international sailing community calls her a legend. How many people do you know that are called legends in their lifetime? Watch her videos, which I linked to from the podcast. They look like they're from movies and not just any movies, but great movies. But they're her life, which she describes in our conversation. She's gone around the world in both directions. She's won races, led teams. She's been named an MBE, which is close to knighthood. She'll share her experiences in sailing spans, calm, balmy sunsets to life and death struggles with forces that can level cities. In her case, with teams that had barely worked before that she brought together to get to work together, which she talks about. Her global vision, literally seeing all around the world, has also revealed to her the growth in plastic, in global warming effects, and other environmental problems. She's passionate, and she works actively to reduce her personal impact and the impacts of others. So let's listen. Welcome to the Leadership in the Environment podcast. This is Joshua Spodak. I'm here with Dee Kafari. Dee, how are you? I'm good, and it's lovely to talk to you. Great to talk to you too. And, you know, just before I hit the record button, we were starting talking about my interest in crossing the Atlantic and you're like, well, you could do it. And then I was like, I don't want to do it solo. And you're like, the way that you said, understandable that you don't do it implied, I have a feeling people really love it. Like once they start getting out on the open ocean and you seem like someone like that, I want to get to what we were talking about, but I want to introduce you. And uh, I feel like there's a couple angles that are very interesting for Leadership in the Environment podcast with you. One is that you are, I mean, you are a world-class sailor. You've competed at the highest levels. You've both soloed and crewed, meaning there's leadership and there's followership. And you also, if I understand right, you you transitioned into competitive sailing, into sailing this much late in life or after a career. And that's a big piece of, of environmental things is like people changing things on a big scale and then achieving excellence. And then there's also, when I talk to sailors who have been out in the open waters, in the deep seas, there's something that happens when they, I don't, I don't know if this is the case with you, but they see a Coke bottle in the middle of the ocean. And it seems like, I can imagine what it's like, but I haven't thought about it or I haven't experienced it. So many different angles I'd like to talk to you about. I kind of want to begin with the transition. How do you're starting to sail? I know that you taught and then you sailed. 
but I don't know. Did you ever, did you not know you're going to sail one day? Did you just grow up sailing? Sorry if you get asked this a lot. No, that's fine. It's, I don't have a story that you would normally associate with a professional sailor. Most professional sailors grow up sailing as children and it's something they've always done as a hobby. And we had a motorboat as a family and we kind of used it as a weekend caravan and we had our summer holidays uh, cruising. And I guess that's where I learned my seamanship, but it wasn't sailing, wasn't an integral part. For me growing up, I went to dance school and I was quite keen to try new things. And it wasn't until I went to university doing a sports science degree that I did a little bit more sailing and thought that that was pretty good. And decided to take it upon myself to get some more qualifications and experience in my own time alongside my degree. And then I spent five years teaching. I qualified and started teaching and absolutely loved it, teaching 11 to 18-year-olds. But it felt as if it was the right job too soon. I still wanted to travel and have adventures of my own. And I made that career change age 27 and went and retrained and finished all my sailing qualifications and then went and found out how to how to really learn about it. So what are sailing qualifications? Because it feels like uh, I took my first lessons and, and I got little stickers that said, like, I passed this course. On the other hand, you can just go out and sail. And also, one of the big things I want to share, I, I'm, I'm new to this, but it's incredibly accessible. When I was a kid, I thought sailing was like, you know, hoity-toity. It's a, the sort of thing that the Kennedys did. And then it turns out, especially since I'm sailing to avoid flying, the amount that I'm saving on flying is way more than what I'm spending on sailing. So what are the qualifications? Well, that's really interesting that you've picked up that the perception of the sport is, as you say, it's expensive, it's elitist, it's inaccessible. But actually what we're all trying to do is show that it is accessible and it doesn't matter how old you are, what gender you are, what colour you are, how brave you are, there's something for everyone. And there's a lot of different boats that you can sail with a lot of different people to get experience. and kind of further your knowledge and we have a system in the UK that has a level of grading of qualifications and they're pretty international or the equivalents of them are and for example now the tightening up of who can just go and do things so if you want to do the Volvo Ocean Race you have to have a qualification that shows that you're the level of a yacht master which shows that you have a certain level of understanding of various aspects to be a crew member and that never used to happen but I think it's a good thing in the legislation of the sport. But as an opportunity to access the water and go sailing, you don't need anything. You just need a little bit of confidence and a good contact. Okay, so for so to do in the races, that's where you need the qualifications for? Um, I think to if you specify to charter a boat. So if you want to go on a holiday and you want to go to a company and say, I want to charter a boat and I'll be responsible for the boat. Oh, uh, okay. They yeah. want you to have a piece of paper to show that you can do that. Um, it's only now recently that some of the big races are looking for qualifications. Um, and I think that's a recent change. But generally, if you just want to go for a sale, no qualifications are needed. Yeah, and no, it's just it feels like it's a big part of sailing is that people keep telling me how accessible it is. And then I keep finding out that it's like whatever they say, I, I'm like, yeah, 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 whatever. And then it, it is <laughs> like here in New York. I just pay a fee to the sailing club and then I don't actually own a boat. There's just a bunch of boats on the club. And any time that a skipper's going out, I can crew, meaning I don't really, I'm learning along the way. And they seem to really like teaching me and I don't have to worry about barnacles and I don't know, all this stuff about owning a boat, leaks and things like that. They take care of all that. I just get to sail. And it's people who say, well, Josh, you're not flying. You're not getting to see the world and so forth. I love that I'm going in less than five miles from home and it's a completely other world. It's like- You're seeing the world from a different perspective. Yeah. And it's also, you know, I remember in college, uh, rollerblades were really popular. I thought, oh, I'll get some rollerblades. And I got some rollerblades and I'd ride around. I don't see many rollerblades these days. Sailing, on the other hand, I've looked it up and I forget the details. It's like at least 5,000 years old. I don't know if it's 10,000 years old. But it's, it's a really human thing. It's really, it, if the pace of life on the boat is very natural. Like whatever problems I have, I forget about them when I'm on the boat. Well, I think that because you're in that environment where you're harnessing the power of nature. 
So Mother Nature is definitely in control and you're doing your best to control that and make it work for you. And no two days are ever the same. So you're constantly learning. And even now, I've gone around the world six times and every day is a school day for me. You sail with different people on different boats and they're always slightly different. And you'll learn some good bits from everybody you sail with and you put them together as a repertoire and slowly you'll have the experience to know ahead of time what you're going to be doing. And I think just looking at life from a different perspective, you pretty much can switch off from a lot of the gadgets and devices and that distraction that we constantly have in our world. And you are just out there, you and the wind and the flapping sails and somebody else, and you make decisions and you, you're kind of in control of your destiny and it's instant, instant gratification. You get an instant reaction and you come back windswept, rosy cheeks, having had some fresh air. And it's like the best thing. Yeah. So this resonates with my experience. I'm still ramping up. And hopefully people listening to this are thinking, oh, that next, sometime when I was, was going to fly, I'm going to take a boat ride instead or something like that. And now let's amp it up and talk about, so the Volvo, when I've seen images, well, I've seen pictures of you and I'm seeing like waves crashing over the bow. And it it looks like not particularly relaxing, although it looks like the sort of thing that when you look back at it, you're like, wow, that was one of the best things I've ever done. So now take us to the peak of this stuff, of you sailing in, let's say, very, what's the word, challenging conditions? Yeah, I mean, every every scenario has its moment. And um, I think the most challenging environment to be in is the Southern Ocean. You're the furthest from any rescue. You're the furthest from any point of land and human contact. There isn't regular shipping so there's no one else down there but the people racing Mm -hmm. and in my scenario when you go around the world on your own you're the only fool down there (laughs) and the waves are mountainous you've got the whole southern ocean squeezing down between cape horn and antarctica they hit a massive continental shelf and the waves stack up and because there's no land mass stopping this momentum it builds and the winds are that much stronger. It's just that little bit colder. The waves are that little bit bigger. And the potential risk is higher. And I think, you know, that's the adrenaline rush that we all love. But it's also some of the best sailing you can do. Yeah, wait, unpack that. It's, I mean, I've, I was about to say, is this like, this is the equivalent of like climbing Everest or something like it rock is. climbers going for the really steep faces. Is there a piece that you find doing it? There's that or- moment where you're fully focused and you can concentrate on nothing else because you know, it's your life in your hands or the people around you, you know, you're in each other's hands and you're getting the best out of your boat with the conditions you're facing. And at that time, if somebody probably asked you right there and then when you're wet, cold, hungry, tired, and a little bit afraid, it's probably the worst day you're having. (laughs) But if they ask you in a couple of hours time when that weather system's moved through and you've come out the other side and the boat's just sailing along, you've got it going really well, you're on the numbers and it feels good, they'll tell you it's the best sailing they've ever done. So it's that. And I think we have this amazing ability in our minds to kind of box up all the bad stuff so we can learn from it and it's there, but we tend to forget that and we focus on the good stuff. And that's probably why we keep going back. This sounds like an addiction. (laughs) Well, I've been around the world six times. I don't think that's normal. (laughs) I'd still like to go again. Well, I, not normal today. I mean, I feel like back in the day, I mean, people used to sail a lot more than now. I, I don't Well, I don't know. You said that and I thought of like Darwin. I guess he didn't go around six times either though. No, it just took them longer last, um, back in the day. Now we go around a bit quicker so we can fit more in. Okay. So you start at 27. Some people get their sea legs when they're really young. And a lot of people, I mean, people come to me for coaching on like life coaching and things like that. And they're like, oh, I feel like it's late to make a career change. It doesn't, for you, did it feel difficult? Was it hard to pick stuff up? Because I also felt like in sports, you know, I watched a little t- a lot of TV when I was young and I felt I always felt like I was catching up. You don't seem like you're catching up. If you, um, I don't think it's ever too late. And that's the really nice thing about sailing. Jean-Luc Van Den Heed has just gone round the world for the sixth time solo on his own age 73 in the Golden Globe race. <laughs> Showing that in a 36-foot boat, age doesn't, like Mother Nature doesn't really care how old you are. You still have to do the same things and produce the same effort and results. And I think that's a really nice thing that sailing as a sport doesn't need you to be, 
young and fresh you know you can actually go with a bit of sage experience as well and and still get through there and I think it you know you can take it to many different levels I made a late career change and came into the sport quite late but I was very driven and focused and I crammed a lot in to catch up with my peers almost but as a sailor you don't have to go racing around the world you can go cruising and experience the world from a different perspective and how about the, you alluded to the, uh, the wisdom, the sageness, and I feel like leadership is, a, it's a, it's a, it can be solo sport. I, although I expect even then there's a probably team aspect to it of the training and, and the, the people you must be in these days, you must be in support in contact with people who are supporting you. And then there's a team element. And I've been, I've only been on a couple times a boat that was racing. And I don't even think I caught, I caught a small fraction of what was going on. Can you tell me about the, the team element and also the leadership aspect of it and because you've been a leader can you tell me about the leadership on a boat yeah and I think the best example of that is my last race around the world which was last year leading turn the tide on plastic in the Volvo Ocean Race I was the skipper and I took on a youth team so 80% of my crew were under 30 had never done the race before and I had 50-50 five girls five guys which had never been done before and I also had 10 nationalities added into that mix as well So it was kind of like the ultimate test of can you get this team up to speed and in the game and competitively sail around the world. It's like a movie. Yeah, I probably learned the most about leadership and myself and getting the best out of the people around you. And that was the really interesting thing. And I think obviously you pick the right personalities and the right people. And the secret is getting whoever your team is, the right people in the right positions so that you bring out the best of their qualities. And you need to identify where the weaknesses are so that you can work on filling those gaps. And I think it's a, for me, it was about empowering. I was giving these guys an opportunity and I wanted to empower them with areas of responsibility that I would support them with. Because that way they completely bought into what we were doing. They felt listened to, they felt they contributed and they felt valued. And I just saw these guys just completely rise throughout the 10 months. And they were a very different group of people that I finished the race with to the people I started the race with 10 months previous. And it's interesting. And I think a lot of leadership or in atmosphere comes from the top. So when we were in the Southern Ocean, I absolutely loved down there. I loved the sailing. And I'd come on deck smiling and going, this is great, isn't it? And of course, because they don't know any different, they're like, oh, okay, then this is good. Okay, we'll enjoy it. And that made them very relaxed and it made them enjoy it a little bit more probably and we didn't have that kind of tension you know they may have been nervous and apprehensive but it dissolved very quickly because they just knew what their role was what was expected and together we went through the process you described a lot of it seemed like observing them paying attention to them and using what you saw of them to figure out how to lead them how to assign roles and so forth and a lot of support which to me, these are major elements of leadership. Although people outside of leadership or on the cusp of aspiring leaders, well, I think the mainstream view, maybe from movies or something, is, is like command and control, which is not what you said. And I'm curious if there are situations where suddenly the weather changed or you have to really buckle down. And do you ever have to go into command and control mode? And Well, ultimately, you're in a life and death situation. And so when it does all go wrong. It goes wrong very quickly. The idea is that you, because you have experience, you can see this change happening and prevent it. But there is an element of making sure the right conversations are happening in anticipation. So I think you get the best out of people by empowering and enabling. And I want to nurture that talent and show that I've got belief in them. You can argue that that's playing the long game, but for me, it's a much healthier environment to be in and you know there are you could argue there are times when you have to kind of actually say yes or no at a critical time but that's only because it's paramount of safety is paramount all the time and the responsibility sits on your shoulders ultimately in this environment but so long as they understand why and how and when then they will still respect your leadership and what you're trying to achieve so it's really interesting that that uh even when pushed and you're describing life and death situations that you even then resist, tell me if I'm characterizing it wrong, that 
of going into command and control mode, it's so, people are so ready to do it and so ready to tell people what to do. That people always ask me, like, Josh, you, if you want to lead someone to do something, how are you going to convince them to X, Y, Z? I'm like, convince isn't really, that doesn't feel like what a leader does to me. Or, you know, they talk about, you know, if we want to change people's behavior, we should pass a law to blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I think you got to change the behavior first and then the laws will come. Because I think people want to use authority. And I, I, I feel like you're like, you're avoiding using authority. Yeah, I, I don't think it has a long-term effect. I think if you go in quite bullish and quite dictatorial almost, um, you lose a lot of respect very quickly and your team won't stay with you throughout. And I think if you, it, it's almost a painful process or a slower process sometimes. You have to invest in your team. But if you can get them to learn and understand and be confident in the role you've given them, then it doesn't matter what happens. When it all goes horribly wrong, you will have utter confidence that they will do the job that you've asked them to do. And because they know that the person next to them is in the same position and the person next to them is in the same position and we're all together going to make this happen, everyone will just kind of follow through. And I think because they feel empowered and trusted and contributing to it, they want to step up and do it. I think if you devalue them by only hearing and not listening to them and kind of micromanaging, then they don't feel there's any trust there. So why should they put the effort in? Oh man, that was a really subtle thing that you said. I, I look forward to listening back to this episode and, and that difference between hearing and listening. And oh, it's massive. Can, can you say more painful. about it? Or actually, can you give a story to illustrate a case if, if one comes to mind? So in the Volvo Ocean Race, we do legs. So we go from A to B, it's two weeks or three weeks, and then you get 10 days in the stopover. And in that time, you want to debrief the leg that you've just had so you can learn from any mistakes. You want to brief and prepare for what's coming up. You need to fix any issues. You need them to rest. You need them to go to the gym. You need them to eat well, sleep well, and then prep the boat to go again. So it's it's quite busy. And actually, it's very easy to think, oh, debrief. You know, do we really need to talk about it and analyze all the data? But actually, investing time, and it does take time, and you're sat there thinking, I could really be doing so much else with my life today. But if you invest the time in the team to do that conversation, to go through all the data and the analysis, to listen to each person's input, it is so valuable in the big picture. Long term, that's where you make the gains. And that's when, you know, your team has stood right behind you, right beside you even, no matter what gets thrown at you. And that's when you can go confident with the team around you. Yeah, you you reminded me of uh, this Air Force pilot who piloted like F-16 jets he was profiling me in, in his book and he was talking about, yeah, in Air Force, it's like you always debrief after a flight. And then when I teach leadership and entrepreneurship, I always, I point out the reflection. I have them reflect after every every exercise. And it feels like what you're talking about. I, I always say you learn from the experience, but you really internalize it and generalize it when you reflect afterward. Is that about similar what you're, to what you're saying? Yeah. And I think it's having that open and honest communication arena where people feel confident to contribute and actually being accepting of what they're hearing. So feedback's not easy to get and it needs to be in all directions. So I sit around the table with them and we all kind of say where the frustrations were, where we thought we lost out, where we thought we gained. And that could be about things I did as well. And it's you've got to be willing to have that conversation and listen to make change so that you can move forwards as a group. And we all agreed with our objective that we wanted to continuously improve and move forwards. Um, It's not always easy to hear, but it's really important that you do stick to that if that's what you've put down as your objective so that you can all move forwards. You do a lot of corporate speaking, is that right? And is it just, is it keynotes or is it also training in in group environments? Uh, It's predominantly keynotes and conferences where there is a a theme to the conference and my stories can often highlight some of those themes, but not so much with the training and leadership. But I do feel now having done the most recent project, because as you say, I've been out there on my own with a remote team. I've been part of a team and now I've led the team. I feel I'm quite rounded and I've learned so much trying to bring all the good things together into one project. And I'm aware of some of the mistakes I made as well. How much of what you bring from your experiences to the corporate world 
is already there? And how much of it is it for people who haven't done some sort of athletic or performance-based activity, is this totally new to them? And like, how much, I feel like they must be getting a lot from this, but I'm not sure. Yeah, quite often they're listening to a story of sailing around the world, which they would never do. But their understanding, so many elements of it, translate to their everyday business environment, be it from the teamwork and the leadership and how to communicate with each other, uh, down to you know setting yourself goals that you can manage and feeling a sense of achievement and getting feedback and listening to it and taking it on board. Do you think, how much of it do they actually get? <laughs> or are, might we be, I don't want to say they, like it's not me. I haven't gone around the world many times. <laughs> How much of it do they get and how much of it can you only get by doing something? I presume you don't, it doesn't have to be just sailing. It could be lots of other sports or lots of other activities that can give you these things. Yeah, I think there's a lot of examples in life where you can actually show it to somebody on an individual basis. But the nice thing with sailing around the world, it does kind of encompass that whole work environment, but we're just in an extreme environment doing it. So the lessons do translate to an office. And when you're talking in a corporate environment, they're hearing it and seeing it, but it's easily forgotten. So actually what it needs is some form of follow-up to their small working groups, as opposed to the big conference where they're all sat there going, well, yeah, she's right. But actually translating it back into their workplace and doing a little follow-up adds the value. That's where it cements the understanding, I think. Do you provide that as well? No, but I think I should. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I would happily do it, but it's it's very, it's a new kind of thing for corporations to understand that coaching is beneficial. And it's not just for the leadership at the top of the pile, but actually for the middle managers to understand how to get the best out of their workforce. Yeah. So you're on the cusp of something there as well. Man, you're on the cusp of things a lot. <laughs> you're on breaking waves. Ugh, I still want to go back to some of the peak, the pinnacle experiences. Have you ever... Can you describe if it's not too much, if it's not something you've done too many times, have you ever been in like really insane conditions where you're like, I don't know if I'm going to get out of this, or maybe you knew you were going to get out of it, but you were taking the equipment to the peak of, of what it could do? Yeah. I mean, I think there's always those moments and I mean, if it was easy, everyone would do it. So in the back of your mind, you know, there's going to be those moments. And I think it's um, what happens is your experience. When you come out the other side, you bank that little bit of experience and then that's your reference for the next one. So whether it's a big storm or equipment failure, because there's, you know, there's some pretty big showstoppers out there that there are no other fixes. You lose your rig over the side, it's game over. You lose your ability to make fresh water, it's game over. You can't eat or drink. You use your ability to generate power. Again, it's game over. You can't run any of your communication or navigation systems. You blow your sails up. You've got no means of propulsion um, to get you anywhere. So there's some key areas and you become this, you try and be an expert, but you're kind of a jack of all trades, but master of none. And you try and get good at everything so that you can do your best and you can have input from the outside world to help you manage that. But ultimately, if it goes wrong, it it potentially can go really wrong. And I think in the back of your mind, knowing that your life is in your hands or if you're in a team, each other's lives rely on each other. It makes a bond that's very strong. Uh, You know, when I asked the question, I was thinking, oh, this is going to be, I I hope for a cool story. But then as you're answering, one, it was a much more sober answer. And I realized I was kind of being inside. I don't know how I sounded, but I felt a little flippant in asking it. But then I was like, oh, this is a better answer than I could have hoped for. And I couldn't help but also think of it in terms of, I don't know if I was translating too much, but also we as a world, how we're handling our planet, that if we don't keep the systems working, you know, this system can go bad and this system can break and that system can break and any one of them could really be a disaster. And we're pushing them all. And I feel like that's also something that your life is really about. Massively and even more so off the back of Turn the Tide on Plastic, understandably, we collected microplastic samples all the way around the world every single day that we sailed. And there were microplastics present everywhere, apart from three locations in the world. And that's mainly due to the ocean current patterns. So I think the realization that this issue is much bigger than we once imagined, and we have raw data for the first time, I think really spoke home to me. And 
And you're right, we are going to be a very short-lived species. We keep talking about technology and innovation, but we are actually going to be a really short-lived species if we don't actually change our habits now for the environment that we rely on. And I think, you know, you hear world leaders speak at different levels of this, but some of the science now can't be ignored because it's actual factual data that shows that we're having this impact, whether it's climate warming or whether it's ocean health. You know, they're all so interconnected Mm -hmm. that we have to make change happen. And we are powerful as a consumer, as a population. We can drive change from the manufacturers, from the supply chains, from government and legislation to make change happen. Feeling inspired? Do you like hearing others acting that you're not alone? Go to joshuaspodek.com slash podcast to hear other interviews, but even more valuable. Join the growing community of people who care enough to act not just talk. Read the list of people who have taken on personal challenges and then commit to one yourself. Don't be surprised if you end up loving it, changing more, and finding people following you without you even trying. That's what happens when you improve your life by living by your values. Now, I just switched topics and your passion did not decrease. It feels like what you just said did not feel like it was rehearsed or it felt like it was coming from the heart. And Yeah, no, it is. It's it's like my sailing and and the two go hand in hand. I use the ocean as my office and my playground and I'm seeing firsthand the issues that are out there and I think it's I think when you talk to people at home it's always someone else's problem someone else's river someone else's ocean someone else's beach but we're showing now that actually we all by our everyday actions are having this effect and so we all need to make the change. Were you a kid growing up this way did it come later was it sailing that was it the increase in sailing that led you to this passion or were you always this way? I think it's always been an awareness, but I, you know, I didn't kind of think about it in my everyday routine or my shopping or how I lived until I started to do more and more sailing. And I've sailed around the world six times in the space of 15 years. And I have seen the, the change happen. I've seen more ice in the Southern Ocean and our route have to come further north. I've seen an increase in pollution in the water. And now I've got the raw data of microplastics present in the ocean. So I think because I'm seeing change and I'm seeing it getting worse, I'm probably more aware of how important it is to action change. And, you know, it's easy to say and to try and do is very different. But actually, there's so much information out there. It's so topical that people are trying to do the right thing. And we're trying to change little habits in our households. But actually now it's making people pull together to realize how much influence they can have on the big next level up, on manufacturing, on supply, and ultimately at government level. Can you describe some things that you personally yourself are doing? Yeah, so I um, I literally don't, I use a, a keep cup, so a refillable coffee cup, and I will go into every place and I will ask for my cup of tea to be put in there. I use a refillable bottle, won't ever buy a drink um, in a plastic bottle and then I've been caught short and I'm a lover of diet coke you know I will buy a can and not a bottle now on purpose so I actively make the right decision always have bags around so I don't ever need a plastic carrier bag I always use a reusable bag and then now I'm kind of addressing my toiletries in my bathroom and I've gone away from shower gel and I'm back to soap and uh, you know looking at shampoo now you can get shampoo bars where it's like a soap for your hair and just kind of making slow changes so that I'm understanding that it is easy and is part of my life. And even now with my shopping, how I choose my products, I don't want them wrapped in plastic. I don't want them prepackaged. You know, it's a potato. It's got a skin on it. Then that's fine. I'll just pick them up individually and put them in my bag. So it's conscious shopping, conscious, correct decision-making. You sound like you have an experience like mine that when I first started avoiding packaged food, at first, it was hardship, and a couple of things happened. One, it felt better. Like I liked, well, certainly the food became more delicious once I learned how to cook, and it became cheaper. And I had the feeling that if it, these little changes I liked, and it, I, it stood to reason that if, if little changes improved my life a little bit, then big changes would improve my life a lot. And that led me to take on bigger changes. And those changes stopped feeling like big changes. They started feeling more like just living by my values, and I really enjoyed it. And yeah. 
And I think you you become more credible when you're speaking to people. If you're actually practicing what you're preaching, you're so much more credible and authentic and people believe you much more. Yeah, people talk, people say, oh, you're leading by example. I, I think it's actually, it's more like if you don't, I think if you can live very environmentally uh, sustainably, but if that's all you do, people will say, oh, that's nice for you, but I'm doing my thing. But if you don't do that, then people will say, you're hypocritical or whatever. They, they, they want to justify doing, they, there's something inside people, it seems that they really want to justify not changing. So I call it, you can unlead by unexample environmentally. Leading by example, you still have to, in this day and age, it's still swimming upstream for so many people that you still have to, you can't just say, I throw out my garbage a lot less because I, I, I consume a lot less garbage or things that be, will become garbage. Yeah, you're right. And actually, it's our generation that is most difficult for. Yeah. It, yeah, yeah, I think it's our generation. Our generation have a bigger problem. Um, I think the youth are really good. They don't have any habit forms and they're pretty open to new ideas. And if you make it relate to them, they're really passionate about it. So if you say to them, how good is fish and chips on a Friday night? And then you go, but those fish are now eating plastic in the ocean because they're thinking it's food. And now you're eating the fish. So you're now eating plastic. Then suddenly they're like, oh, wow, well, what do I do? So you say, well, you need to change some habits. And do you need a straw in your drink? And do you need to buy that bottle? You know, why don't you use a refillable bottle? And they start going, understanding how their actions have an influence and an impact. But our generation are so stuck in habits and so habitual in what we do and how we live that that's the hardest bit to change and uh, we're we're quite a strong influence in the younger generation but fortunately i'd say then the youth now are driving the uh, awareness of the environmental changes yeah and actually you said something very early in the in our conversation that not just awareness but action because a lot of people keep saying i want to become more aware i'm like you know, when something's front page news for decades, everyone's aware. You know, everyone who's ordered Chinese, uh, not China, anyone who's ordered, who's ordered takeout food, at least in New York, they have this pile of plastic. It's like a lot of plastic. They're plenty aware that they're doing stuff that they don't need to do. It's the behavior. And I think that's where leadership comes in. Education alone without leadership, I think, is it got us where it got us somewhere. But the next step is really leadership. And I'm, I'm, I'm really glad to hear. From you, what I think, what took me a long time to learn is that if you start with telling people what to do or just facts, people have defenses to stop. But if you, if you find something that they care about first and connect it to that, it seems to be much more effective because then they do it for their own reasons, for themselves. And, and people and, want to understand why. So when we talk about eat less meat, you know, try being meat-free on a Monday, for example, they go, well, I don't want to be a vegetarian. You know, that's not what I'm about. And it's like, you have to explain how much it costs in water and environment and land to keep livestock and how much the process of making that livestock into their food is costing us in the environment. And I think when people start to understand the whys, then they're much more willing to make a change. Oh, well, I'll try it. And then, you know, you're halfway there then. So now I'm going to say, I'm going to share with you one of the reasons I want to have People such as yourself, who are world-renowned, who other people follow, who are influential, is that not just have the average person pick up on these things, but imagine the CEO of, I don't know, McDonald's saying what you just said, or you know, feeling like I could really make a difference. Because I think right now they tend to be older than us. And you know, they're th- you know, I think they have this common thought of like, oh, there's gonna be more plastic in the ocean than fish by 2050. Well, that's some problem for someone younger than me, but it's not my problem. And then they make the decisions kind of not really thinking that like Florida is going to be submerged within, it's not going to be submerged within their lifetime. Yeah. And so my goal is like to keep working with influential people and to keep working to, to keep meeting increasingly renowned influential people so that, because I believe that systemic change, I, I think we're talking about a systemic change. If you get like, if you get a billion people to change, but not the other 6 billion You've changed a lot of people, but the systems may still stay the same. Whereas if you change people who are very influential, then I think you have a chance of systemic change, people who are at the leverage points of the system. Yeah. Yeah. No, and I think they're the key people we need to 
get talking about the topic. And I think, you know, you're right. Let's let's hear from the fast food chains about the issue and what they're doing about it. And I think the consumer now is much more willing to challenge, challenge authority, challenge that upper echelon to try and get them to either justify or make change. And I think that's where we're seeing the power from the consumer, from the average person. Yeah, a lot of people keep saying, oh, there should be a law about this. You say to someone, you know, uh, here in New York, it's you can anyone can get a plastic bag all the time. And lots of places are outlawed and lots of places they're taxed or, or there's some charge for them. And you say, you don't need that bag. And, like, and first they start saying things like, see, normally I don't say it because people, I, I get too much pushback. But if it comes up, someone will usually say, well, yeah, well, I get the bag, but I use it as my trash bag at home. But of course, you know that once you have it as a trash bag at home, you start creating more trash because you have more receptacles for it. And in any case, people are like, we're swimming in trash bags. People are like, even if you turn away 90% of the bags offered to you, you still have more than enough bags. I turn away, as far as I roughly 100% of the bags, and I'm still swimming in plastic bags because people leave them at my place that I never asked for. And if I ever need one, I can just go down to the recycling bins in my in my apartment building. And there's people use a bag to bring... Man, people go to the grocery store. They buy a bag of potato chips. With that is alone, it's like a kind of odd thing to do. And then they put the potato chips, one bag in a bag. And so now they have a bag to carry a bag. Totally unnecessary. And they, oh, I forgot where I was going. Get me talking about bags. It's it's like, yeah, the, I mean, the low-hanging fruit is so much that we could get, there's so much that we could get rid of. People think getting rid of things is lowering their quality of life. And there's so much that we can get rid of I would guess something like 50 to 75% of what Americans use. We could get rid of, and all of that would be improvements by any stand, by any measure of their life. Like not like we'd have to make do with, with less, but like we just have more freedom, more mental freedom, more physical freedom, less spending, less money. And, and I think it's, it's the good. awareness that, it's the awareness that we did exist before this came along. So plastic's only been around 100 years and it's only been super popular the last 60 years. And I think, you know, we did exist before that and we made the right choices, but we went into this kind of very disposable um, environment where we lived, speeded up how we lived and it was all very disposable and that's how we treated everything. And I think it's just getting people to go back to former values. We're not asking people to go back in time or go backwards or regress. Plastic has its uses if it's multiple use, but anything single use, there is a better alternative. And it's getting people to make those informed choices, I think, again, that is needed. Yeah. Does that feel natural to you now? Like a lot of people, they hear this and they can't stop themselves from thinking, you want us to go back to the Stone Age? You want us to have all dying at 30 years old? And I, this weird false dichotomy that I think people new to something they don't get the nuances that you can not have plastic and have uh, you not have single use plastic. You can drastically reduce the amount of plastic and you can still have the internet and you can still have modern life and actually more, you know, one of the people I had on the show on, on this podcast, a Colonel in the army, he's at West Point and he stopped using disposable stuff. And then it turns out he and his wife have had a box of China that they got from, they inherited from a grandparent. And it was just in a box that as they moved from place to place, this one box would never get opened. And they said, if we get rid of the disposable stuff, why don't we use China? And now people come over and they're eating off of China. It's really nice. And even if they broke all the China, they would just, now they wouldn't have that box and they could, they could at worst go back to what they were doing before. But instead it's like, they got the China. It's like really nice. And they were not using this really nice stuff in order to, because you know, we're all into, we don't realize how much we externalize our costs and the cost of externalizing our costs. And once you make the switch, what you're talking about feels to me natural, but if you had said it to me 10 years ago, it probably wouldn't have made sense to me. I suspect, is it the same with you, that there was a time before when you wouldn't have really thought of like, yeah, just throw it away, whatever, whatever. Oh, completely. And I think it's quite interesting the way once you become more aware and you understand better, you see more of it. And we had this big discussion on compostable and biodegradable and the difference and understanding that one will go into landfill and still stay there, but one will go into landfill and slowly break down over time. And, um, you know, then suddenly you become very aware of what you're looking for. 
and you start looking more for it. So it's it's one of those things that if you start to make the changes, the momentum comes naturally, I think. When you say what you're looking for, do you have a sense of what you're looking for? What When you think about the environment, what what is it to you? Is it cleanliness and purity? Is it adventure? Or I think right now it's more because I'm prepared to challenge. I go to an event and I'm looking, you know, have they got a water station? Can I refill my bottle? Is it possible to buy a drink? Will they put my cup of tea in my cup? What are they serving their hot drinks in? Are they compostable? Are they biodegradable? Oh, look, there's plastic cutlery. Oh, no, it's bamboo cutlery. That's really good. And I'm because I'm aware of what the more choices there are available, I'm very critical now to see if people are making the right choices. And I think there's a demand of events, sporting events, cultural events, anything where mass population visit. They almost have a responsibility to demand that their outlets and their retailers meet certain levels. There is, you know, the right kind of products being used at food outlets. And I just, you know, you start to look for those decisions and whether the right choices are being made a lot more. Oh, man, this is exactly this is what I'm working on. Like, uh, I'll have to talk to you more about I mean, I went to an event on Sunday. I was a speaker. I brought with me my own metal fork and spoon. I brought a plate, I brought a napkin, and I still couldn't eat anything because everything was still single use wrapped up. And I started, I talked to them and they're like, we really do want to change. But when I actually spoke to them about, all right, let's talk. They're like, uh, talk to someone else. So it's like, they want to, but they're still struggling to make it work. One of the things I'd ask of people on the show, and I think that this would resonate with you, is that given your, I mean, you described it as a challenge and you have directions that you specifically want to go in. I'd like to invite the guests, and I invite you at your option, if you're up for it, to act on one of, on your environmental values in a way not to fix all the world's problems overnight by yourself. It's not, you know, not to do everything, uh, but to act on your values, to do something, you, something you're not already doing and something that's not telling other people what to do or paying other people to do something for you, but something measurable. And you've already done a bunch, but I wonder if there's anything that you haven't, that you've been thinking about, oh, maybe you, you've been looking for a reason to try something new? Uh, Yeah, I think I need to, you know, look further with the food shopping for sure. I can make some changes. And a lot of it, sometimes I'm making the right choices, but sometimes I'm accepting what's just there. And I think, you know, rather than get that prepackaged meat or that prepackaged fish, actually making the effort to go to the fish counter or the meat counter with my Tupperware and saying, can you put it in there? I think I'm, you know, I don't do that at the moment and I believe in what I should be doing. So therefore I need to step up and do it. So when people have something, I I suggest making it a smart goal, specific, measurable, actionable, realistic, and time-based. Can we make it like a time-based specific thing and then then talk about how it went afterward? Sure. Well, I'm going to action that as of next week. Okay. Yeah. Actually, I'm going to tell you something that there's a, a guest of mine a while ago she was going for reducing food packaging. And she asked me, what do you do about meat? And I was like, I don't eat meat, so I don't really know. But then another guest of mine, do you know B. Johnson? B-E-A Johnson? She's had a bunch of TED Talks and she found out the way to get, if you go up and in her experience, if you gave someone Tupperware and said, can you put the meat or fish in here or cheese? Then they would say, oh, we can't do that. And she learned that what she does is you have to not make eye contact. So you hand it to them looking down at the stuff and say, give me a quarter pound of that and don't make eye contact. And then if you do that, then they're just like, uh, sure, whatever. And then they do it. This sort of uh, ask permission, don't ask permission, beg forgiveness, sort of sort of like that. So a little tip from what I've learned. I love that. Oh yeah. And well, it's going to be tips, interesting. I probably, have, I probably have 50% of my meals are vegetarian anyway. So I don't eat a lot of meat. I eat a lot of fish. And um, again, it's the same kind of packaging. So I... Um, I'm willing to um, test that theory of whether I make eye contact or not and make sure uh, I get it put in my own, my own containers. Oh, cool. I look forward to hearing that. Now I can report back to B how it went. And how long do you think you'd have to do it to be able to talk about it and share uh, what the experience was like for it to sink in? I think I need to, you need to do it for a month. They say 21 days to break a habit and it's too easy to go, oh, I forgot or I didn't take them with my containers with me or oh, it's just too difficult. And, uh, you know, it'd be interesting for me to think of the supermarkets near where I am, where I'm shopping, 
to know how easy it is to do it at those various locations. So um, I think it'd be fascinating, but I think you need to do it for a month to actually convince anyone that you have been credible at it. Okay. So after we finish the recording, do you mind if we set up the uh, a second conversation for them? Sure. Okay. Cool. Uh, now let the viewers are only listening to this. They don't see this. I see a smile on your face. <laughs> is this something that, that you've wanted to do? Is this something? Yeah. I mean, we, we talk about it in the car all the time and um, it is something we should do better. And so now it's basically just giving me the kick to do it. Okay, cool. And uh, I'd like to wrap up with a couple of questions. Is there anything I didn't think to ask that is worth, that, that came up in your mind that's worth bringing up or to share? No, I think it's been quite diverse in uh, our topics. Oh man, I would have, there's so many topics I wanted to keep going on about, but I want to be sensitive <laughs> to your time and the listeners' times. And is there anything that you want to say directly to the listeners? Um, I just think if you can just take one simple gem from every person you listen to on this podcast, if you collate them all and put that into your lives, it's going to make a massive change and massive impact. So don't be afraid of it. And, you know, you don't have to like everything that people say, but if you can just take one gem and follow that through in your life, then, you know, it's the slow change that will be beneficial. It sounds like you're speaking from experience. Well, yeah, I read a lot of books. I listen to a lot of people and you don't always agree with everything they say, but there is normally one or two gems that I think should stand out that you want to kind of take on board and absorb and maybe emulate in some form in your life. Dee Kafari, thank you very much. Thank you, Josh. Speak soon. How many people do you know who can jump from classroom to Southern Ocean to corporate boardroom? I love hearing this breadth than anyone. I can learn from her in sports, business, education, life. And really, if you have not watched her videos, watch. I have the links in the podcast page. They're amazing. As for us listeners, with the level of change to everyone's lives to reverse the effects we've had on this earth, to see the magnitude of her change in her life and how much she loves it is refreshing. I think most of us get the magnitude of the change we have to do. Most people act like the smallest change is too much. They want to learn how to keep doing what they're doing and still feel like they're changing. Dee embraced change based on her values. It sounds like she loves it, and something tells me that's why she lives a life that leads her peers to calling her a legend. And like many who acted on their personal values, despite her having done a lot, she was quick to do more, I think because she expects she'll like it. I look forward to hearing how it goes. Did you feel inspired too? Then act. Go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and click to commit to your personal challenge so you can inspire others. Value means better and worse, and living by your values means living better by your values. You may struggle at first, but it's the hero's journey from living by others' values to living by yours. People say that little things add up. I won't argue against it, but what I find counts is acting. Doing something, anything, starts that mindset shift from the debilitating others should act first or making excuses to the empowering I can make a difference and living by my values improves my life. I don't have to wait for others to act first. I'm looking for leaders, people who will bring what works here in this podcast to communities I haven't reached. Billions of people want to change their behavior. There's room for leadership from personal leadership of just yourself to whatever scale you want. Start by acting and changing yourself. Go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and commit to your personal challenge.